but when you do that, it might be helpful for you to start your sentences with something like, how can I, or how does a man, or what can I do to, or why is blank dangerous, or why is blank important? Uh, some questions dealing with some practical issues. We don't necessarily need to get into a whole bunch of doctrinal stuff this morning. I don't think that's necessarily uh, the, the uh, focus of the conference or the focus of the meeting that we have here, uh, but really how do we apply the things that we've been listening to? So if something struck you last night with the messages that were preached, something this morning, something during our breakout sessions, yeah, I want some follow-up on that. Uh, those are the types of questions I think will be most helpful. You can ask anything, uh, but those types of questions I think will be the most helpful for us uh, if you can think about those things. How do I, as a man, do this? How do I implement this uh, uh, thing into my life, this concept, and do those things? So if you could think about that, uh, that would be helpful. I want to thank Pastor Shedd and Calvary Baptist for having us out. I appreciate his vision for this meeting and for all the helping hands here at Calvary to put this together. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I'm always very thankful and excited to see guys getting together to do some work and get some things done. I appreciate that. So Nehemiah chapter 13 is where we are at. And I want to take, talk a little bit about the devil in your treasury this morning, the devil in your treasury. And uh, your treasures are important. You want to protect your treasures. You want to protect those things that are important to you. You want to protect that place where you store those treasures. So dealing with our treasures and our treasury is a very important thing for us to focus on as men, as leaders, as fathers, as husbands, and all of those things. So we want to protect our treasure. We want to pr protect our treasury. And uh, I heard Pastor Bill tell Pastor Bob one time that I'm looking for a treasurer. And Pastor Bob said, I thought you just hired a treasurer last month. And Pastor Bill said, yeah, that's the one I'm looking for, right? We want to protect our treasury. We want to protect our treasure. We want to protect those things uh, that, are on the, uh, 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 that are of the utmost important to, importance to us. All right, so I want to give you a couple of scripture verses to get into our uh, study this morning. A couple things for you to just kind of put on the back burner. Let them simmer there as we're going through our text. Let the aroma kind of fill the room of your mind as we're going through the rest of this text. The first one you see in your notes there, it is Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. Luke 6, 45, and Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. So Jesus is telling us here that it's important what we have in our heart. It's important what we have in the treasury of our heart. That word treasure there, of the good man out of the good treasure of his heart, speaks both of the place where you store precious things and the precious things that are stored there. So he says, out of the good treasure of our heart, we bring good things. If we've got good stuff in our heart, good stuff's going to come out of our mouth. Good stuff is going to come out of our lives. Good stuff is going to come out of our behavior if there's good stuff in there. If we have evil stuff in our heart, that's the stuff that's going to come out of our mouth. That's the stuff that's going to come out of our lives. That's the way we're going to behave. So he's talking about this good treasure here in Luke 6, 45. On the other burner in the back there, if you would, put this verse, Luke, uh, Luke 12, 34. Where the Bible says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So now he's talking about a literal physical treasure, right? He's talking about that if we, uh, that we should take no thought for the morrow, that we, should, uh, 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 that we should trust God for all the things, that he's going to take care of us. He'll give us all these things. If we seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, all those things will be added to us. And he's going to take care of us in those ways. So when we look at these two verses, we see two important things. The first one in this verse, in Luke 12, 34, we see a literal physical treasure. A literal physical treasure. Either I can store up my treasures here on earth, or I can store up my treasures up in heaven. If I store my treasures here on earth, if I'm worried about amassing treasures here on earth, then my heart is going to be here on earth. 
if I'm more interested in amassing treasures in heaven, rewards in heaven, then my heart is going to be in heaven. He's talking about a literal, physical treasure here in this verse. But in that first verse, Luke 6, 45, he's talking about a spiritual, metaphorical treasure. A spiritual, metaphorical treasure. He's talking about the treasures of our heart. He's talking about the things that are precious to us in our heart. And those things are important to us. We need to protect those things and preserve those things. So a literal, physical treasure and a a metaphorical, spiritual treasure. And I want to think about those things this morning, and I want to think about this question. What happens when the devil gets in your treasury? What happens when the devil gets in your treasury? Whether it's that literal metaphorical space, or that, or that, or that literal physical space, or that spiritual metaphorical space, what happens when the devil gets in your treasury? So Nehemiah chapter 13, if you'd look with me as we read, Bible starting in verse 1 says, On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from all Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid meat offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. But all this time was I not at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah, in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore, therefore, I cast forth all of the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. And I made treasurers over the treasuries, Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and the Levites, Padiah. The next to him was Hanan the son of Zachur, and Madaniah, for they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto the brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done before the house of, of my God, and for the offices thereof. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask you to open it up to our heart. We thank you that we have it whole and complete for us, and it is the book that gives life. We ask you to speak to us through it this morning. I ask you to forgive me of my sins that I might preach with boldness. Strengthen my flesh that I may preach with clarity this morning. Help us to see, dear God, what happens when the devil gets into the treasury of our heart. Protect us, dear God. Help us to confess. Help us to get right with you this morning. And we love and we thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we deal with our text before us this morning, I want to kind of help us to understand where we are in the book of Nehemiah and what the book of Nehemiah is about. If you'll go back to Nehemiah chapter 1 there, Walk back there to Nehemiah chapter 1. We know that the book of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah's concern for a remnant. His concern for a remnant. That Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. His job is to taste the wine before giving it to the king. If, if Nehemiah dies, you know that the wine was poisoned and the, and the king will live. So that's his job. He's the right-hand man to the king. He's the cupbearer to the king. But he's disturbed and he's distraught about a remnant of his people. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. 
So Nehemiah, who's up in Persia, hears word that Jerusalem, some individuals have gone back to Jerusalem, and they've begun the re rebuilding process back there, but still the wall is broken down, and still the gates are burned down, and the remnant there is discouraged, and he is discouraged for this remnant. So his heart is hurting for these individuals. He's discouraged for this remnant. So he makes a request to the king, and we see that in chapter 2, that one day Nehemiah, sad over this, distraught over this, the king sees him and says, what's the, what's the matter, Nehemiah? Why are you so upset? Why is this going on, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, how can I not be upset when my homeland and my people are in such dire straits and in such a serious situation? So he makes a request to the king, and we see that in chapter 2, verse 4. Look what it says. Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if the servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah and to the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. So he asked the king, king, can I go back and rebuild? Can I go back and help in that work? And the king says yes, and sends him, and actually sends him with provisions to help him to supply in the work. Next we see Nehemiah surveying the ruins. So he goes back to Jerusalem, and at night he goes out and surveys the ruins to see how big this job is that he has before him. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. The Bible says, And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, into the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof, which were consumed with fire. So he went out and he reviewed the ruins and saw what needed to be done and what needed to, 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 to happen. And he gathered all the rulers and all the nobles of the people, and he gathered the people together and said, Look, we've got a job to do. We've got to rebuild this wall. We've got to rebuild these gates. We need to put this back together. So he spoke to them of the rebuilding process. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Verse 17, then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which is good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me, and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Giddy up, that is good stuff. That when the people of God, when the men of God hear that there is a burden upon their leader's heart, and they said, don't go you and build, let us rise up and build. Let God strengthen our hands for this good work. We'll be talking a little bit about that in our breakout session, about having a band of brothers that are willing to work in the church house and willing to do the work of God and surrendering to the work of God, and that is a good thing. But here the men rise up, and they want to be a part of this. So they begin the rebuilding process, but that doesn't always go well, right? When God's people are trying to build God's kingdom, somebody's going to get upset. And for the chapters in the middle of the book of Isaiah, that's what we see, this is the response. You can see a picture of it in chapter 4, verse 17. Take a look at that. Chapter 4, verse 17, the Bible says, They which build it on the wall, and they which bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with, his, with one of his hands wrought in the work, and the other hand held a weapon. You see what's going on here. That as they're rebuilding this wall, in one hand they've got a trowel, and they're putting the bricks together. On the other hand, they've got a sword, and they're fighting off the enemies. That at one time, they're, they're working. At one time, they're fighting. It's a full-time job. They're trying to get this wall built. They're committed to the cause. But there are certain individuals that don't like what the men of God are trying to accomplish, what the men of God are trying to build. Well, they go through, and they're able to rebuild the wall in 52 days. They're able to get it together and get it constructed in 52 days. And over in chapter 7 there, you see Nehemiah in his register. Now he's going to register and count all the people. Because they've got to repopulate this city. So he has this registry that he does to count all the people. Verse seven, chapter, or chapter 7, verse 5, look at it. It says, And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them, which came up at the first and found written therein. And there's the chapter that you skip when you're reading the book of Nehemiah, right? Look at all those names. 
right? You don't ever read that. You, you, you lying if you say you do, right? You skip over that chapter because all those names. But they're registering the people because they've got to repopulate the city. They've got to bring the people back. So that's why they're counting. Well, after this great counting, we get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, and that is the great revival, right? This is the crux of the book. This is where everything changes. From the beginning there, it started with despondency and desperation and disappointment. And now they're in the center of the book, and it's time for revival. It's time for the men of God to hear from the word of God and make a decision upon that. In chapter 8, we see that all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. Right? With harmony and with unity, they gathered together. Look what it says in that verse there. It says, they said unto Ezra the scribe, bring the book. Bring the book of the law. That was their hunger. They got together and they didn't say, hey, Ezra, entertain us. Hey, Ezra, put on a show for us. Hey, Ezra, say something funny. They said, Ezra, bring us the book. We want the book. We want to hear what the word of God has to say. We want to hear what the commandments of God is, which the Lord commanded unto Israel. And they were attentive unto the book. Like it says in verse 3 there. At the end of that verse it says, And those that could understand, meaning even though all the little children were there, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. They said, we want to hear what you have to say. We want to hear what God has to say. It tells us that, that Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people in verse 5. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. So here's the revelation of the book, and everybody stands up at attention, ready to receive what is going to be said. And look what they say in verse 8 there. Ezra blessed the people, uh, blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with a lifting up of their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7 tells us they caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Verse 8 tells us that, the, that they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So all day long in front of the people, they get up there, and these men on this pulpit of wood, proclaiming the word of God and explaining the word of God and sharing the word of God. And you know what the reaction among the people was? They broke down. They began to cry, and they began to weep when they began to hear what they had been neglecting from the word of God, what God had expected of them and what they had ignored. It tells us, in verse 9 there, that Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. He says, go back. Go back and, and eat the fat and drink the sweet, right, and give portions to those that don't have anything. We're going to party because we're excited that God has moved among us, and we're excited about the choices that we're going to make. So this great revival begins to, to break out. And then we see the repentance that follows the revival. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. They're into this. And great repentance has come to the people of God. For a fourth of the day, a quarter of the day, they're praising God. And for a quarter of the day, they're reading the law. And they're excited about what Nehemiah has brought, what Ezra the scribe has brought. And we see the renewal of the people. Finally, in chapter 10, 10 through 12 is the renewal of the people. Look at verse 28 of chapter 10. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they clave to their brethren and to the nobles. And listen to this. They entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our, God, our, our, Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes. 
So watch what happens. After this revival, what do they do? They start making promises, right? That's the expectation of a revival service is to get right with God and get renewed in our hearts and start making promises with God. And this is what the individuals did. They started swearing to God. They put themselves under an oath and under a curse that God, you will be our God and we will be your people and we will serve you with our whole heart and we will be after your commandments and we will follow after you and we will bring our tithes into the storehouse and we will take care of the priests and the Levites and the singers and we pledge our lives to you, God, and we're going to follow after you, God. And from this point on, God, we are for you. And that's the message. That's the heart of the people. Well, you flip your notes over there. Number two, you see Nehemiah's return. That's Nehemiah's revival. This is Nehemiah's return. So after all that happens, Nehemiah decides, i got to go back. I told the king of Persia I wasn't going to stay here forever. So he goes back to the king of Persia. He goes back, but he's going to return. How many people know that Jesus went away? And he's going to return. Nehemiah went away, he's going to return, and he's going to find out how things are going. Jesus went away. He's going to return. He's going to find out how things are going. So, Nehemiah comes back. And at the time of Nehemiah's return, it's about 430 B.C. Around 430 B.C. is when Malachi is writing his prophecy. It's when Malachi is preaching. You know the book of Malachi. Malachi is not very happy about the situation in Israel. God's not happy about the situation in Israel. And he's telling Malachi to write these things. And the familiar verses from Malachi that we know, Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we know these verses, we hear them often, where it says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? And what's God's answer? In tithes and offerings. God says, you've robbed me. They say, how have we robbed you? God says, in tithes and offerings. This is the time of Nehemiah. This is the time that Malachi is writing. He, God goes on to say, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that ye, there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing... There shall, there shall not be room enough to receive it, right? We hear that during missions conference. We hear that during uh, building programs. We hear that when it's time to preach about tithing. We hear about that verse. But when is that verse being preached in its context? During this time of Nehemiah where he goes away and he returns and he sees that what happened. While Nehemiah was away, during this time, an evil spirit worked its way into the treasury of the people's hearts. There was a revival there was a renewal. People made pledges and oaths to God that I'm going to get it right and I'm going to do it right. And while Nehemiah was away, an evil spirit worked its way into the treasury of the people's hearts. Now here's the in interesting thing. The evil spirit didn't just work its way into the metaphorical, spiritual treasury of the people's hearts. We saw in the text here that the spirit actually worked its way into the literal, physical treasury of the temple. Right? Look at verse 7, back in Numbers, or Nehemiah chapter 13. Verse 7, And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Do you get that? We pray and we praise you, God, and we swear that we're going to follow after you and we're going to bring tithes into the storehouse and we're going to take care of your, your Levites and your singers and, and the nephew, and all, we're going to take care of all those people. Nehemiah comes away, goes away and comes back, and there's a dude living in the treasury. A dude! living in the treasury. The treasury is empty. The priests and the Levites and the singers are out in the field working because nobody's taking care of them with the treasures of the temple. The work of God has ground to a halt. And here's this dude. How do you picture this dude? 
right? I picture him laying back with his feet up, you know, button-down shirt with the chest open, chest hairs poking out, just, you know, eating chips, Cheeto dust all over his fingers, right? Just a dude. And where is the dude? He's in the treasury, where the treasure is supposed to be. An evil spirit has worked its way into the treasury of God's people's hearts and into the literal physical treasury, too. A devil's in the treasury. You see, why do you call it a devil? Because we know this guy, Tobiah, right? We know this guy. This man, Tobiah, is the man that withstood Nehemiah every step of the way. That throughout this entire building project, throughout this entire uh, 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 this work of God, as Nehemiah did something, Tobiah was there to stop him, to hinder him, to counteract him, to cause problems for him. This wicked spirit of Tobiah. Now I'm afraid that this wicked spirit of Tobiah might have found its way into the treasury of your heart, in the treasury of, the, of our church's hearts in various different ways. And we need to identify that and know what that is so that we know how to respond accordingly, right? So look at this devilish spirit, this evil spirit that's worked its way into the tre- treasury. The first thing we see, number one, under Nehemiah's return there, we see that, first of all, it was a competitive spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Go back with me. Chapter 2, verse 10. A competitive spirit. The Bible says that when Sanballat and Hor- the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So Nehemiah is there. He wants to do the work. He wants to get something done for God. And what happens? Tobiah sees it, and his competitive spirit flares up. Right? Sanballat and Tobiah, they kind of got a thing going. They're comfortable. They've been doing things their way for a while. They're set up. Everything's going their way. But here comes this guy with some initiative, and they get agitated. Have you ever seen that in the work of God? Where somebody gets some initiative, they want to do something for God, and somebody gets agitated by it, and they don't want to see it happen? That's what we're dealing with right here. I'm sure even this conference, that when a man had a vision for it, and said, I want to get a bunch of guys together, and I want to try to encourage them, I want to try to lift them up, I want to try to help give, give them some direction, that somebody somewhere said, oh, look at this guy. He's taking some initiative. What's he think he's doing? What's he going to accomplish? How is this going to work? What are you going to do? How are you going to get this done? Right? And a lot of times when God's people take initiative, somebody gets agitated over it. It was a competitive spirit. And sometimes that works its way into our churches. Sometimes it works our ways into our heart. That, oh, that guy's going to take up offering this week? I thought it was my job to take up the offering. Oh, that guy's going to lead that ministry? I thought it was my job to lead that ministry. We develop a competitive spirit. But not only was it a competitive spirit, number two in your notes, it was a condemning spirit. A condemning spirit. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, Then when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? What are you doing, right? We might say it this way in today's day and age. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? Nehemiah comes to town. He says, we're going to rebuild this wall. We're going to rebuild this gates to the glory of God. Tobiah says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Has that ever happened to you? When you got a burden to do something for the Lord, when the Lord presses upon your heart, you should say something. You should sing something. You should do something. You should start praying with your family. You should start doing this thing. Uh, you should start getting involved. And the devil whispers in your ear, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What, are you going to be a big star now? What, are you Mr. Spiritual now? Are you going to go ahead and, and do that thing? You think that's going to matter? You think that's going to make a difference? Let me ask you a question. 
Have you ever whispered that in your pastor's ear? By your mouth or by your actions? When your pastor gets on fire for something, gets a burden for something, says, I want to try this, I want to do this, I want to, I want to, I want to see this happen, God's showing me that this is the way to go. And by your words or by your attitude, you say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right? It's a condemning spirit that shuts down the work of God. Tobiah had it, and it's moved into the treasury of God's people. Number three, you see, it was a critical spirit. A critical spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3, the Bible says, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. What's he say? It doesn't matter if they build it, because even if they build it, if a fox were to walk across their stone wall, the whole thing would crumble down. He says, it's not going to work. There's no way that it's going to happen. It's never going to go that way. We've never done it that way. It's just going to fail. Boy, we've got some good Christians that have discernment ministries, don't they? They like to sit and look at other people's churches and look at other people's works and look what other people are doing for the Lord. And instead of getting involved or lifting them up or praying for them, if a fox walked on that thing, it would fall right down. A critical spirit tearing them apart. I don't care if you go on YouTube and you, you learn something about how to say something to a particular person or, or how to share the gospel the right way or, or what this means uh, in, in this Bible verse, but when you're spending your time in entertainment on critical spirits, you're wasting your time. That's the devil in the treasury. That is an evil spirit in the treasury. How about that guy that sits at the church business meeting and says, let me just uh, play devil's advocate on this. I don't like that guy. The devil's got enough advocates. He took a third of them with him from, from heaven when he fell, right? The devil doesn't need Christians to be his advocates. If you've got an opinion, share your opinion. Tell me the positive. The devil doesn't need any advocates. A critical spirit is a dangerous spirit. And that works its way into our churches. And that works our way into our hearts and into our families. Number four, look, it's a conspiring spirit. A conspiring spirit. This was mentioned just a few moments ago. Verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being made up, that the breaches began to be stopped, they were very wroth, and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. They conspired together. What did they do? They formed a little clique. They formed a little club. They formed a little camp. They saw something that they didn't like, something that they did, and they do it really well. And these guys over here don't do it the way that we do it. So we are our camp, we are our clique, we are our club, and they're the other club. They got together, and they got together. It's good to get together over doctrine. It's good to get together in association. It's good to get together and lift each other up and encourage each other and have each other's back. But when it's just for the idea that we're us and they are them, and let's keep it separate, then we find ourselves in a very difficult place, a conspiring place, right? Because why? Because we form these little camps, and we form these little cliques, and we form these little clubs. And instead of being independent Baptist churches, what do we become? Totally dependent Baptist churches, right? Totally dependent on what my camp says, what my club says, what my clique says, right? And your little group that you form in your church building, because you don't like when the pastor did this, or you didn't like when deacon so-and-so did this, or the deacon's wife said that, right? And you form your little cliques and your little clubs and your little groups. Why? Because you want to stand together. But sometimes standing together causes unnecessary division. So it was a conspiring spirit, Right? Wasn't it fun to kick kids out of the club when you were a kid? Right? You're out of our club. You said that, you're out of our club. You're going to do that, you're out of our club. Right? Kids and Baptists don't grow out of that. You're out of our club. We don't want you anymore. You're out of our club. 
Ironic, right? Unity is what God wants for us. Harmony is what God desires for us. Number five, look, it was a compromising spirit. A compromising spirit. Over in chapter 6, in verse 1, they're knee-deep, neck-deep in the work here. They're, they're getting it done. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when Sambalet and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sambalet and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. So they're almost, the work is almost done. It's almost complete. And here comes Tobiah and saying, Hey, 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 let's just get together and talk about this. Let's just get together and see if we can come to an agreement and a compromise on what's going on here. You read down, and in verse 7, very similar. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Oh, we hear that you're saying that there's going to be a new king in Jerusalem. Well, we should probably tell the king of Persia about this. He's going to be very upset. Maybe if we just got together and talked about this, we could come to a compromise. We could come to a, 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 an agreement on these things. So what's he trying to do? He's trying to pull Nehemiah away from the work to have unnecessary conversations that are going to lead to compromise. What does Nehemiah do? He says, I just got to build the wall. My job is to build the wall. My job is to get the work done, right? Sometimes, as a pastor, we need to be reminded that that's our job, to build the wall, to get the work done, that people are going to want to call us away to do a myriad of other different things. But there's a work to be done. It was a compromising, a cunning spirit. And then finally, pastors, you might want to hold on to this something because it might trigger something. Try not to punch a hole in the wall, right? But it was a conniving spirit. It was a conniving spirit, number six. Look at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. What are the nobles and leaders doing? They're writing letters to Tobiah. These guys are supposed to be on Nehemiah's team. Who are they writing letters to? Writing letters to Tobiah. What's Tobiah doing? Sending letters back, right? What are they doing? Texting each other behind Nehemiah's back. What are they doing? They're emailing each other behind Nehemiah's back. What are they doing? They're tweeting each other behind Nehemiah's back. They're doing, having all of this conversation behind Nehemiah's back. Now, that's one thing, but look, it gets worse. Verse 18. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter Meshulam, the son of Berechai. Oh, there's a family in the church. Yeah, right? Grab onto something, right? Don't punch the person next to you, right? There's a family in this. You don't understand. The family of Tobiah, they go way back. The family of Tobiah, they're a pillar here in this congregation. You can't go against Tobiah and his family. Yeah, right? So there's this confrontation. But it gets worse. It gets worse. Look what it says. Verse 19. And they reported his good deeds before me. Yeah, I know. Oh, pastor, you don't understand how good of a guy Tobiah really is. You don't understand how spiritual and what spiritual advice this man gives. You just don't understand Tobiah the way that we understand Tobiah. He's really just a nice guy, and they reported his good deeds to me, but it gets worse. And uttered my words to him. So they're going back saying, you should hear what Nehemiah said about you. Right? Coming to Nehemiah saying, Tobiah's a good guy. He's not a good guy. And then going back to Tobiah saying, here's what Pastor said, here's what Nehemiah said about you. Right? It's a conniving spirit. But it gets worse. Look what it says. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. 
So while everybody is loving Tobiah, oh, he's part of the family. Oh, he's part of the group. Oh, he's so spiritual. Oh, he's so helpful. Tobiah is doing what? Letter after letter, tearing up Nehemiah. Letter after letter, trying to put Nehemiah in fear. That happens in churches. It doesn't happen in your church. But it happens in other churches. Where there's a group, where there's a family, where there's a clique. And they're trying to intimidate the pastor into this is the way that it needs to be. I know that you're the man of God and, and God has given you a vision to lead us. But we're comfortable leading from the back seat here. And we'd like to, to take that responsibility away from you to lighten your load. Sending letters. Tearing up the preacher. Tearing up the man of God while all of this is going on. And here's the thing. This spirit works its way into men's hearts. And this spirit works its way into churches. And if we're going to be doing the work of God, if we're going to accomplish the work of God, we can't let that happen. We can't be tearing each other down. We can't be tearing down the man of God. We can't be talking about each other behind his back. We can't be seeking to compromise. We can't have a condemning spirit about us. But if none of those things struck a chord with you, it's okay because I own a, th a thesaurus, right? Because it's not just these types of spirits, right? You can have these spirits in your head. You can have these spirits in your head. But maybe you've got a crooked spirit this morning. Maybe you've got a covetous spirit this morning. Maybe you've got a complacent spirit this morning. Maybe you've got a careless spirit this morning. Maybe you've got a cold-hearted spirit this morning. Maybe you've got a carnal spirit this morning that your heart is so full of sin that God can't do anything with you anyway. It's those spirits that are holding back the work of God. And it's our job at this conference to cleanse those things, to get rid of those things, to get right with God so that we can have harmony, so that we can have unity. Number three in your notes there, Nehemiah's reaction. How does Nehemiah respond to this? He goes away, he comes back, he sees there's a dude living in the treasury. He sees that the hearts of the people have been tainted with this evil attitude, this evil spirit. So what does Nehemiah do? First of all, we see he's crushed. He's crushed by this sin. Look at verse 8. Chapter 13, verse 8. And it grieved me sore, Nehemiah says, when I came back and found Tobias sitting in the chamber in the treasury. And the treasury is empty. And the priests and the Levites are working in their fields because the people of God are not taken care of. God's, people, God's soldiers, God's men, God's preachers, when they're not being taken care of, and they might have said, it crushed me. I was sad to see that sin. My question for you this morning, are you sad to see that sin in your own heart, in the heart of your church? When you see a spirit of evil in your own heart and in your church, when you see sin, do you get sad? Because sometimes we embrace it. Sometimes we excuse it. But what we need to do is eliminate it. Those evil spirits are holding us back. And I'm not talking about a demonic presence, an actual physical demon. I'm talking about that demonic spirit that influences our thoughts, influences the way that we act. And the way... So Nehemiah was crushed by it. He hated to see it. So what did he do? Cast that dude out. Right? Look what it says in verse 8. And it grieved me sore, therefore I cast forth all the household stuff out of Tobiah, out of the chamber. That's what we need to do this morning. If we can identify an evil spirit in our heart, a carnal spirit, a conspiring spirit, a conniving spirit, whatever it might be, we need to identify it. We should be crushed by it. And we need to kick that thing out. Amen. Cast it out this morning. Take it. I love the picture here. Right? It grieved me sore, therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. He went in there and he just started cleaning the house, picking up Tobiah's stuff and throwing it out in the lawn. 
That's what you need to do this morning. Identify that evil spirit in your heart. Cast that thing out in the lawn. What is it that's holding you back from being a man of God? What is it holding you back from accepting responsibility and acting appropriately as a man of God? Take that thing. Cast it out. Take that thing. Get rid of it. And then what does he do? He cleanses the chamber. Number three, he cleanses the chamber. Look what it says in verse 9. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. He says, we got to get the filth of Tobiah out of this place. We need to get the stank out of the treasury. How do we do that with our hearts? How do you get the stank out of your hearts? It's called confession. It's called confession. The word confess means to agree with God. That we, not just a liturgical or ritual confession, here's what I did, I'm enumerating my sins before you, God. No, confession is agreeing with God that that spirit is evil. That when I'm criticizing my brothers in Christ, that's evil. When I'm tearing down other people's ministries, that's evil. When I'm full of carnal thoughts, that's evil. And I'm crushed by it, dear God, and I'm casting it out, that's repentance, and I want to be cleansed of it. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the treasury is cleansed. Then what happens? He collects the treasures that actually belong there. Look what it says in verse 9. And they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. He brought the stuff that actually belongs in there and brought it back. That's a step that we miss sometimes, gentlemen. That we find our sin, we see our sin, we cast it out, we repent of it, we turn from our sin to God, we cast it out, we cleanse, we confess before God, but then we don't put any good stuff in its place. Where do we end up? Same place we started. Back in that same old sin. Back in that same old thought process. Back in that same old thought pattern. Back in that same old evil spirit. Why? Because we didn't fill it with any good stuff. That's what Nehemiah do. He says, that's not where Tobiah belongs. This is where the precious treasures of God belong. And it is our duty to get involved with the precious treasures of God. It's called submission. It's called sanctification. It's called trying to conform ourselves into the image of Jesus Christ and filling up that treasury with the good stuff. Because we know that out of the heart comes what? Well, if it's a good heart, comes the good stuff. If it's an evil heart, comes the evil stuff. And then finally, number five, he contended for righteousness. He wasn't done. That once he got right, he wanted to stay right, and he wanted to help other people get right. right? So look what he says. Verse 10, And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. They starved out the preachers. They starved out the priests. They starved out the singers and said, you get out. We're going to make this place for the evil spirit. We're going to make this place for Tobiah. And the priests weren't getting supported. And the singers weren't getting supported. And those people that were supposed to be supported by the work of God weren't getting supported. And Nehemiah says, I'm not going to stand for that. Look what he says in the next verse there. Then contended I with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. So he got the guys together and said, what are you doing? This is the house of God. This is a place for the precious and beautiful things of God. There's no room for an evil spirit there. You can't get God's work done with an evil spirit there. God's workers are out in the field because there's such an evil spirit in the house of God. God's workers can't even get anything done in the house of God. He says, you need to get rid of that evil spirit. If you'll stand with me this morning. It's possible that an evil spirit at some point has crept its way into your heart, maybe even into your church. Nehemiah gives us a pattern here of how we can get rid of that. We need to be crushed by that sin. We need to identify and get sad 
about it. We need to cast that thing out and cleanse our heart. We need to collect the things of God. We need to get working for God. Fill that empty space with a heart for God and a message of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. That You don't know what it means to be a Christian. You don't know what it means to be saved. We understand that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That God commendeth his love towards us and while we, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took our sin debt, the wages of sin is debt, and died for our own sin on the cross so that we could have the gift of God, which is eternal life through, Jesus, through Christ Jesus. I ask you this morning with your head bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment. Have you allowed a carnal spirit to creep into the treasures of your heart? Don't excuse it. Certainly don't embrace it. Eliminate it. There are places that God wants to take you. There's things that God wants to do with you that he cannot, as long as that spirit is residing in the treasures of your heart. Will you choose today to cast that evil spirit out? contend for righteousness, stand up for God, serve God, and live for God. I pray that you will this morning. Pastor.